Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is Benjamin Cohen. Benjamin is editorial director of From the Grapevine and the host of the new podcast, Our Friend from Israel. He has written for the Washington Post, the Daily Beast, the Huffington Post, Yahoo News, and Slate. Cohen is also the author of My Jesus Year, A Rabbi's Son Wanders the Bible Belt in Search of His Own Faith. It was named one of the best books of the year by Publishers Weekly, and it earned Benjamin the Georgia Author of the Year Award. I give you Benjamin Cohen. Benjamin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. It's, it is great to have you, and I feel like I know you already because I kind of do. We were connected through a previous guest, Chaim Simon, who teaches at Villanova Law School, is an expert in religion and law. And I did, found out after I did that interview that he is a childhood friend of yours. Yes. We go way back, old school, like really old school, like, like elementary school. Uh, that I mean, is, like that preschool, is old. actually. Preschool, elementary school, high school. And even uh, a couple semesters in college we spent together. Oh, yeah. So this is, yeah, this is very, very, you know, this is ancient, ancient history yeah. you guys have together. Yeah. And I could you introduce both... you to other people from our, from our graduating class if you want. <laughs> I would love, that would be fascinating. It's just uh, the, the observant Atlanta, Atlanta Jew section of Jews, <laughs> yeah. the or, Orthodox kind of cross section there, which probably was, I'm sure, a demographic niche in metro atlanta it was when i was growing up but it certainly um it ballooned a lot in the last 20 years that's for sure no it's i mean you grew up you pretty immersed in judaism in fact in your book my jesus year you you tell the story of your own birth and circumcision i guess they were they were looking to see if you were circumcisable you were you were you were a fighting weight so, so to so to speak to, to, to step in the ring with the moil and the only scale was a butcher shop yes uh that's the uh, at least that's what they told me you know i don't really remember the story but they told me that on the eighth day uh before the, the day of the bris the day the right before they brought me um i'm a short guy and uh you know i guess i was a uh, a, a, a extremely tiny baby at the time, and so they they had to weigh me uh, to make sure I was uh, uh, large enough, I guess, um, to to uh, to go through with the breast. And so they put me on a on a butcher scale at the kosher and, butcher shop, which where, by the way, I later uh, in high school I worked at that butcher shop as a summer job. <laughs> and you were nicknamed Butcher Boy before you could even speak, right? <laughs> Yeah. So have you done, like, okay, if you're working in a kosher butcher shop, like, you know your way. I mean, you, you must be great at, like, are you the designated carver of meals? At the time, I was, like, 15 family? years old, and uh, they had, I, th I hope they had some professionals who were doing that. I was kind of uh, working, you know, working in the front of the store. <laughs> You were never like, hey, look, I want to learn how to cut meat. Like, I want to, I want to get, I want to see like, you know, animal innards and things like that. No, but later in life, actually, my my dad, who's a rabbi, was also a kosher supervisor, and he used to work at a. He used to visit a bunch of um, food plants around the southeast uh, for kosher supervision purposes, and uh, oftentimes I would tag along, and he would introduce me as his um, as his rabbinic intern or rabbinic assistant. 
So, so in those instances, you know, I guess you could say I, I kind of helped out with the kosher supervision. Does that pay? Is that a good paying gig being the kosher no, supervisor? I mean, it's a like, good what, side gig, I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, is, is it like vacation money? I mean, what do you? I mean, what what do you get for a visit? Like, you know, the, uh, uh, like a food, you know, company brings you in. I mean, what do you what do you well, make to do this? There's a middleman. What happens is the food the 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 food the factory is paying a kosher. Uh, uh, an over an umbrella company like the Orthodox Union is a big one. That's the circle with the U inside of it, and uh, and so they're they're the ones, and then they're the middlemen, and then they freelance it out to people wherever the factories are. So I'm not really sure what the what the pay is. I, I mean, I do know some people who do it who do it full time, but a lot of people do it kind of as part of their overall rabbinic activities. Did you ever flag people like, hey, look, this is <laughs> well, no, gosh, I, this I is a travesty. Remember. This is this is so ritually defiling this place. No, well, t- two funny stories. There were a couple places we went to which really don't need kosher supervision. Like um, we went to a paper cup manufacturing company and paper cups really don't need a kosher symbol on them. But they the company figured if they did have a kosher symbol on them that it may um, make them unique in the marketplace and maybe people would buy their cups because they thought they were, I don't know, holier cups. Or I guess you don't want cups with holes in it. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm here all week. But, but you could do this. You could market all this kind of stuff. Hey. What about a kosher beach ball for people in their summer? You know, well, kosher, just you know, something, kosher something circle related down. to food. A, 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 you know, a paper cup is related to food. Um, what about a kosher blanket? Because you put, could be putting out food, you could be putting out food on the blanket of the beach. So another place we went to, actually, I, I forgot if it was Sweet and Low or Splenda. It was one of those um, companies we went to. Uh, I think it was in Augusta, Georgia, and basically it's all chemicals. It's just vats, you know, barrels and barrels of chemicals. And so basically, I mean, when a rabbi walks in there, he's just making sure that none of the workers have like a, you know, a, a cheeseburger in their hand, you know, while they're while they're dealing with the uh, <laughs> with the product. So that's an easy gig. Like if it, if it all pays the same, provided it all pays the same, that's the gig you want. You right. want the Splenda factory. Just, okay, no cheeseburgers. I'm done. That'll be three hundred dollars, please. Well, and you also have to sign like a like a non you know a non disclosure you know so you can't reveal what the secret ingredients are. There is you know there's a famous um, story. I think there's a book about the history of Coca Cola, and there was only like a handful of people who actually knew the um, what was in the uh the formula for coca-cola and um one of those people was the rabbi who got to see uh you know the inner workings of what was going on there so that he could determine whether or not it was kosher wow i mean that guy i would guess at like rabbinical conventions or whatever that guy's got a story to tell i mean this is <laughs> hey i'm the only one that knows yeah yeah so it's interesting you talk about in your book how your dad was not the greatest business trained rabbi he wasn't and he 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 was gonna he's the principal of, of this school superintendent of the school and he went to a, a synagogue a place to pray and, and for religious observances and so he hires the shady contractor with your college nest egg money and basically three days later or something the guy flees town with all of the money well i don't know if it was three days later but um or shortly thereafter. Yeah, we. My dad attached a one thousand square foot synagogue onto the side of our house. Um, so you know, when it came Saturday morning, did uh, it blend in nicely with the house, or was it like kind of? I mean, it, architecturally, I, I think so. it was really nice. It had like a little little domed sunroof on top. Um, I think I think it. I think I think it blended in. 
Um, but it was a, you know, it was a really nice experience. And, uh, so yeah, so that when he first did it, um, I think the, the original contractor took all the money and ran. And then, so it took a while to, to finish. And what, but when he finally, when they finally finished building it, it took about a year, I think maybe a little more than a year. Um, it was a nice small sanctuary. We had about 30 people on a Saturday morning, Friday night, Saturday morning, Sunday morning. And it really kind of gave me a real good firsthand experience of what it's like, the inner workings of a synagogue, so to speak. And you, you know, shortly after the construction and, and some of the chicanery, the one of that, you, your mom had an aneurysm and, and died. Yes. Um, yeah. So she, she passed away. I, I was uh, 13 years old shortly after my bar mitzvah. And, uh, you know, it was tough, uh, as you can imagine, uh, at that age, you know, losing a parent. And, um, you know, I think it kind of shaped a little bit, you know, my religious experience. Um, you know, I had a dad who was a rabbi and then the mom who's not there anymore. Um, I'm not sure how I would have turned out differently one way or the other, but it certainly, I think, shaped my religious journey. Yeah. And then your, your dad remarried this woman from San Diego, right? Yes. Did you like lobby to move to San Diego at all? <laughs> like, cause I mean, it's nice. Although, you know, the downside is like. You know, I like I've never felt as attractive as when I lived in Pittsburgh. I feel like I was a Pittsburgh Tim. People don't take care of themselves really. They're not legit. They're not working out. They overcast. I feel like I'm a San Diego four. You know, like I mean, San Diego's a tough place to live because everybody's so good looking. Uh, yeah, no, San Diego is beautiful. Beautiful weather out there. Uh, been out there a few times, but no, it was never really in the cards. Our our life was in Atlanta. My dad's job was in Atlanta, so it was really never in the cards to to move out west. And you had a kind of spiritual, is it fair to say like a spiritual hardening in, in light of your mom's death and just, I mean, you, you talk, you, your book, My Jesus Here is, is when you, just, is about you deciding to sort of visit a, spend, you know, a year like hang out in churches, not for the purposes of converting or anything like that, but you just thought, hey, you know, I want to, maybe this will help me get some perspective on my own Judaism if I'm hanging around Jesus's people, you know, and kind of, there'll be a, you know, sense that maybe uh, uh, the the religion that I have that I've been born into, it's it's not existentially compelling right now. And this, this might help with that problem. Well, yeah. I mean, I grew up across the street, you know, I'm, I'm from I'm in the Bible Belt, you know, there's a, a church on every street corner, you know, it's kind of like Starbucks. Um, and I grew up across the street from a church, uh, I think it was a Methodist church. And, you know, I would see every Sunday morning, they had, you know, a full parking lot and, you know, everybody looks so happy to be there. And it, I don't know if you know, but like in America, 50% of Jews are unaffiliated and don't belong to any synagogue. And, you know, maybe they go to synagogue once or twice a year for the high holidays or for a bar mitzvah or something. But, you know, most Jews in America do not go to synagogue on a regular basis. And so, but here we have this, you know, dichotomy because I was living in, this, in the Bible Belt and I would see these churches and the parking lots are full every Sunday. And so I kind of wanted to know, and, and as you said, you know, I grew up in, you know, as an Orthodox Jew and I would go to synagogue three times a day and it, it got, became kind of monotonous and everything became kind of rote. And so I was thinking to myself, you know, why is our services so monotonous and why do ha why does half of American Jewry not go to synagogue? But yet all these other people are going to church every Sunday. What are they doing inside that church that's so, for lack of a better word, fun, 
that's bringing people back every Sunday. And so that was kind of the impetus to say, hey, you know, because I'm a journalist and I said, maybe I can turn this into a journalistic endeavor and say, what if I could be a fly on the wall for a year and visit 52 different churches every Sunday for a year, Baptist, Methodist, Episcopal, Evangelical, you know, Mormons, uh, and try to find out what's going on at each of these places to see if I could find, like you said, I didn't want to convert to Christianity. I was more trying to better understand Christianity to help me understand my Judaism better. It's interesting. If somebody identifies, if you're a cocktail party or somebody, if somebody identifies as a Jew, you don't really know if they're religious or not. Right. But if someone identifies as a Christian, they probably are. Right. You know, they, they and they're probably they probably have some theological opinions. And again, if you identified as Jewish and even if you were semi observant, you know, you went to synagogue a little more than on the high holidays. You mm-hmm. know, you went as much as, say, Jared and Ivanka. You know, you know, you you still might not have robust theological opinions or, or very pointed ones, right? right. As, as opposed to when you self-identify as a Christian, you probably are, are, are much more self-reflective about religious ideas. Mm-hmm. Would you say that's fair? Yeah. I mean, I think Judaism is a religion of deed, and Christianity is a religion of creed. So it's deed versus creed. And so to be... That sounds like a Rocky movie. Deed versus creed, <laughs> Apollo Creed. <laughs> Uh, there's actually a great book. It's called Understanding Judaism by Rabbi Benjamin Blech, B-L-E-C-H. And I think the, the subtitle is Deed versus Creed or, or something like that. Uh, but it's, it's, he, he discusses in there basically, um, and I'll boil it down to 10 seconds, is that, is that um, in Judaism to be you know, a quote-unquote quote good Jew according to the Bible, it's to do all these things. Keep kosher, keep the Sabbath, you know, do this, don't do that. Um, and in Christianity, it's more of, do you accept Jesus? Do you believe that makes you a good Christian? And so, uh, you know, as you just said, you know, you could, you could, um, you could do these things, but not have that reflect reflective capacity, so to speak, um, and still can be considered a quote unquote, uh, I'm going to use quotes here, quote unquote, good Jew. Yeah. And so, you know, you talk, it's funny too, because you talk about like living in the book, you talk about your own sort of young adulthood and how you would fly to New York, right? To date, like there's not many Orthodox Jewish from Atlanta. And the ones that you said you were sort of a Casanova in, in, <laughs> in school, right? Like you were, you were, you were like, Hey, I'm the charming one here, but I've, you know, I've sort of dated all the, I, I, I've gone through all the available options here in Metro Atlanta. Yeah. I've got to get out where, I mean, New York's uh, that's there's probably you got a better shot there than Israel. I mean, like, (laughs) so you're flying to New York to go date like people and meet people. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I was the charming one per se, but it's a small it's a smaller dating pool. So I thought I had a better chance uh, in Atlanta. But like you said, I I knew all the girls there. I either dated them or they didn't want to date me. And so, you know, um, I had friends, you know, most of my friends uh, growing up, you know, in the Orthodox Jewish community, they got married in their early 20s. And I was in my mid to late 20s and still was not married. So I was considered... You were the equivalent of a spinster. Yeah, I was the old maid. (laughs) Um, And so my friends, you know, I had friends in Manhattan, for example, and they said, well, you know, there's plenty of of available girls up here to date. And so I would fly up, you know, just for like a day or two days. You know, I'd fly up in the morning, like a Sunday morning, and I'd have five first dates planned. You know, I'd, I'd go out for like coffee, lunch, coffee, coffee, dinner. 
you know. And coffee, lunch, coffee, lunch, coffee, coffee, dinner. <laughs> and then I were you were you like saying the same stories? Did you, did you have like a routine? Oh, okay, sure. I've Here's what we're gonna open up with. I'm gonna get to this. You know, we're gonna talk about. Yeah, did it, but like you had a routine. Or or I'd get confused. I'd be like, oh, so your brother's in law school? And like, no, my brother's not. You know, like I would forget which one I would I would be sitting with. Um, and then I'd fly home that night. You know, all all jittery from the caffeine. You know, so it wasn't. I probably dated. I would say close to a hundred hundred women that way. Uh, this could have been a, if this would have been a great version of The Bachelor, <laughs> the Jewish Bachelor. Yeah. I mean, you could have had you know like that would have been great. Yeah. Well, I think it was before. It may have been at the beginning of reality TV. The cusp of reality, the writer <laughs> strike. Uh, but yeah, and then I ended up. And one of the women you dated actually, yeah, was married and didn't tell you. That was one crazy <laughs> story. Yeah, I tell I tell a few of these stories in the book at the beginning of the book, and that's uh, yeah, she was married and she didn't tell me. I I mean, I, to be fair, I, to be fair, I don't know if I should be fair, but to be fair, she was, I think, you know, obviously can. You know, on her one foot out the door with her husband. <laughs> but yeah, she- my wife and I we used to go to this local bar. It, it cha- was we still go there, but it changed hands. But before it changed hands, there was this guy staying out there all the time, and he always used to tell people he he and his wife were separated. I'm like, what? He's like, well, look, she's at home right now. I'm here. We're separated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this woman was a little more separated than that. But. Yes. Yes. But anyway, and then I ended up. You know, as fate would have it, I, my my future wife was actually in Atlanta, um, the daughter of a Christian minister uh, who I met um, at synagogue on a Saturday morning. She was, um, can, before I even met her, she was interested in converting to Judaism. And I met her at synagogue, you know, this beautiful, blonde, Aryan-looking girl. And I'm like, you know, she's not one of the girls I already knew. So, you know, I, that kind that's kind of how that started. Do you feel like you you got a big win for the team? I mean, <laughs> you got a blonde, arrogant into Judaism. I mean, how that just doesn't happen. You, um, Jared Kushner, <laughs> right. like you know, a, a, ben, ben Jared Stiller, Kush- I think Ben Stiller. Yeah, I mean, these are this does not happen very often, and and you weren't even a celebrity. Like you just <laughs> kind of. I mean, that's you should be a celebrity. Well, maybe. the best part is uh, I um, I get to celebrate Christmas without feeling too much guilt. Because I can just say, you know, I'm going to my in-laws for Christmas, and they actually have a a stocking with my name sewn on it. You know, it's probably the only stocking in the world that has the name Binyamin on it. And um, you know, I feel like I feel like I <laughs> yeah, can. Yeah, as I'm thinking about, yeah, that's probably yeah, yeah. I think that's probably the case. So I, I feel like I have, you know, I I have access to that world without having to leave my own world. So I think that's certainly uh, a benefit. Do you like Christmas? Oh, it's my favorite. Um, you talk a little bit in the book about just the, the, the sort of stuff that people, the the orgiastic consumer stuff. You're kind of like you're, I kind of like that. Like I like I, I, you like that a little bit. Yeah, there's a whole chapter in the book about Christmas, and I also talk a lot about in the book about the marketing of Christianity versus the marketing of Judaism. And I think one of the reasons you see differences between you know the attendance at services between synagogues and churches is because they do a much better job at market. Simply put, they do a much better job at marketing themselves. It's um, a missionary religion, you know, like Islam or 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 even Buddhism. I mean, that you're so part of Christianity is built into it. Is thinking about how do we put asses in the seats? Like we got, you know, if, if Jesus says, "I'll make you fishers of men," right? How do we cast the lords out there? Whereas in Judaism, you know, you talk about this in your book. I mean, m- many people that are familiar with Judaism know, like, 
you got to ask a rabbi three times. Right. And it's convert, a long process. Right? You know, a lot, it takes, usually takes at least a year to convert to Judaism. Sometimes longer. I think my wife took almost five years to convert to Judaism. So it's a long, it's a long process. Do they put you through more paces if you're an Aryan, if you're a blonde <laughs> Aryan? They're like, hey, look, yeah. you're on the five-year plan, all right? I mean, every, every, the truth is, every there, there's not a set. You know, every situation is different. It really depends on the rabbi you're working with and what their standards are. But um, are, are converts like the the best Jews? I mean, I, I know that like I know like for, for instance, Roman Catholics. Um, I know a number of priests that say that if if somebody becomes an adult, if they're received in the church as an adult, right, and they go through the adult rite of initiation, they'll be you get three or four of them in your parish that can tra- change the whole parish because they're into it. They're passionate. They're, they're. I mean, is is the same thing true in Judaism when somebody becomes a convert? I mean, do they be? Are they generally kind of in it to win it because they've chosen it in the sense of self reflectively as an adult? I think so. I mean, that's my my opinion is. Um, you know, they, they call themselves Jew, Jews by choice, and uh, you know, Judaism is not a, to be not to be confused with Jews for choice. No, right? <laughs> they're Jew Jew by choice. So. You know, most of us are are born into the religion, whether we wanted to be born into it or not. And in my opinion, you know, these people chose it. I I think, you know, that was one of the reasons I was attracted to my wife was that here I was going through this, you know, religious inquiry and spiritual journey. And, you know, I was feeling very cynical about, you know, certain aspects of Judaism. And here I get to live with somebody who has, who's looking at it with a fresh perspective. So to me, you know, that, that, that was a big, uh, a big deal. I mean, you know, Ruth, Ruth, I think was one of the original converts, you know, the biblical Ruth. And, um, she's looked at, you know, we just had this celebrated the holiday of, um, Shavuot, which, you know, one of the things we do is read the book of, of Ruth and we talk about, you know, how, how much of a, you know, esteemed woman she was. Yeah. I think the book of Ruth is an incredibly compelling story. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's one of the great sort of narratives in the Hebrew Bible. You know, it's just and and, and what's great about Ruth right is she choose she she's not uh uh she it, it's not socially beneficial for her to do it. Like she's not marrying Ben Stiller or coming into the Kushner money, although Ivanka had her own money. Or you know, there's not a kind of there's not worldly allure or status or power. In fact, Naomi says, "Just look, you're free. Go back." to your own family and she she chooses it when it's hard you know and right. when it's not socially advantageous right right so do you it's like is being married to a, a, a jbc a jew by choice is it like having a running partner that's faster than you is she like come on come on pick it up you're slowing us down um i don't know if i'd say that per, per se i mean it does it does keep you on your toes you know you want to go through instead of just going through the motions you want to make a bigger deal of it so that, you know, she can experience it. You know, she's experiencing some of these holidays for the first time. And so instead of just running through the the rituals, you kind of want to make a bigger deal out of it. So I, d- I definitely think she, she keeps me, you know, she keeps me on my toes. You know, in your book, you talk about, it's funny because you, you asked all these rabbis, yeah. many of whom, I mean, you sort of went like, it's sort of like an adolescent that wants to go do something, right? You go to the permissive parent, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, you called like sort of, rabbis that you thought were sort of looser, more ecumenically leaning, you know, interfaith friendly. And they tell you, don't do this. It's a bad idea. And then you go to this Orthodox rabbi who surprisingly gives you the blessing, thinks it's a great idea. Yeah. As long as you go uh, with your journalist badge on, right? Yeah. So he said, so basically, you know, just to put some context on it is, you know, growing up as an Orthodox Jew, we were taught that we were never supposed to walk into a church. 
Uh, it was prohibited to walk into a church, and specifically to walk into a church during prayers. Like it was just like a very taboo thing to do, and there's a lot of Orthodox Jews who just who just won't do that. Um, and so, you know, I wanted to uh, kind of get the get the green light for this project. And so my wife said to me, well, you, well, you can do this project, uh, but you got to get a rabbi's permission. You know, obviously the, the converts, that's the first thing they think of. Well, let's check with the rabbi. First. What's the rabbi going to say? <laughs> right. So I, w- I went to uh, a rabbi um, and he surprisingly, he surprised me. He said, yes, you can go. But he gave me two conditions. The first condition was that I wore my press badge so that people knew I was there, you know, as an observer, not necessarily not to pray, but just to be there with my notebook and take notes. And the other thing he said was he wanted me to, me to wear my kippah, my skull cap, so that, you know, people would know I was Jewish. You know, I already looked Jewish. You know, I'm a short five foot two, glasses wearing, you know, nerdy looking guy. I look Jewish, but he really wanted me to stand out. And so that was his other uh, requirement so people knew I, you know, what I was there for. I was there to, as as a journalist to write a book and not there to to pray. Did anybody, I mean, you know, for our listeners, I mean, you, it's you're a great observer of of Christianity. I mean, you're you're like a Jane Goodall. I mean, you're out there among <laughs> primates, and you're very good at like, you know, I mean, you have great, but and you went to all sorts. Of, you went to mega churches. You went to Episcopalian churches. You went, I mean, churches large and small. You. You finished your journey at the Methodist Church, you know that 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 you grew up across the street from, which which ironically, or maybe like a month after that visit, they closed their doors, right? Mm-hmm. And you have a sign from the church in your house now, right? Like the or something? Don't you have it on your wall? Yeah. So, were did anybody try to sort of convert you? I mean, were, were there people that were you know told you if you just read C.S. Lewis or something like that that you'd, <laughs> you'd Mark Oppenheimer says if another evangelical tells me to read. C.S. Lewis, I'm going to shoot them and myself. <laughs> um, I mean, I certainly had people who were very. I, 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 there, no, the, the truth is, there there wasn't really a, a situation where people were trying to convert me. You know, if anything, they were more interested in Judaism than I was Christianity. Once they found that I was Jewish, they were just poking and prodding at me like I was some alien from outer space, and like, you know, why do you wear that skull cap, and what does this mean, and. You know, most of the places I went to, they were looking at Jews as, you know, the Old Testament Jews. They had, they were like, oh, we never met a Jew before. And I'm like, do you have a doctor? Do you have an accountant? I'm sure, you, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure you've met a Jew before. That was, that was like, um, what, did, what, did Roy, what did Roy Moore's wife say? For people to think we're anti-Semitic, <laughs> right. our lawyer is a Jew. <laughs> that was so shocking. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, really, no. Ever, I mean, I, I could not have had a better experience. There was one or two churches out of the 52 that, you know, I, I had a negative experience at. The only time someone actually tried to convert me was after the book came out. <clears throat> um, I was on a book tour, and I was on a, t- a morning TV show, and I was in the green room, and I was in the green room with Stephen Baldwin, who was also promoting a book. Oh, boy. I've heard him on Stern. Yeah, he's... he's a- He's very zealous. Yeah, he's the evangelical Baldwin brother, and, and he's funny because he has like he has like he has this like fun fun to like support him because he is a Christian now and he's maligned in Hollywood, you know. And right, right, right. We need we need to give him money for his influence. Hey, how about if you were just a better actor, right. <laughs> you'd probably get some work. Wow. <laughs> I mean, he's he's a he's a he's an interesting character, that's for sure. So when when we started talking. He's like, oh, you're Jewish, and I actually, actually, I actually wrote about Stephen Baldwin in my book, and I showed it to him because I had a copy with me, 
And he, he turns to his publicist and he goes, how much time do I have? And the publicist is like, oh, you're good for an hour. And so he sat there for an hour trying to convert me, you know, reciting Bible and verse. And uh, I was like, you know, dude, it's just, it's not happening. And then, and then later that day I went, he was doing a book signing at a Barnes and Noble. And I went to that, that evening and uh, there was a, cl- he thought he saw you at that book. So he thought I got him. I laid the groundwork conversion at 6 p.m. Now, he was in the middle of speaking in front of a crowd, and I walk in, and I walk in in the back, and he's like, oh, Benjamin Cohen, the rabbi's son, is here, and he starts doing his shtick, you know, and trying to, trying to you know, corner me in front of everybody. <laughs> but I have a picture of me and him, um, and we've stayed in touch a little bit, but, uh, you know, that, that's who he is. But that was really the only time someone tried to uh, convert me during this process. Do, do you ever wonder why that, I like I love I mean my wife hates it like when Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons come around I love like I because I feel like if somebody like tries to evangelize me that they like I feel wanted you know like like so I kind of like I so I mean or, or is there ever times you're just like gosh I mean I'd be a I'd be a good pickup for the team I mean I took one of yours so right, wouldn't you right, right, right. <laughs> like do you ever have like low self-esteem like gosh I mean why don't they all want me like Stephen Baldwin <laughs> I mean if you I mean they they're they're just doing their job. I remember when I was going to, uh, I spent a day missionizing, uh, walking door to door with Mormon missionaries, and um, they were, I went around with them. What happened was the the male Mormon missionaries ride bikes around town, and the female Mormon missionaries drive cars. And I'm lazy, so I went with the female Mormon missionaries in the car, and um, I, you know that. They were interested in me, and obviously they were interested in me because they were trying, you know, because they're an even evangelizing group. But you know, I was like, oh, this this nice, cute girl is interested in me, <laughs> you know. But you know, but most of the time, you know, you know, I'm not thinking. I don't, I don't look at that as a self esteem thing that they're trying to convert you. <laughs> you know, you also hung out with the Black Hebrew Israelites. Yeah, there's a few different groups around america they're all slightly different um the black he- they're called black hebrews generally they're called black hebrews um there's a big group in chicago and there's a big group uh in atlanta and, and they're kind of this hybrid jewish christian group or at least the, the group that i hung out with was this hybrid jewish christian group where they follow some things from the old testament and some things from the new testament and um they're kind of a bizarre um sect so to speak. And yeah, I, yeah, they and they're in Philly. I, I sometimes on Fridays I try, c- can catch some of their street preaching. It's, 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 a, it's a scene, man. I mean, yeah. they've been on like Howard Stern. Some of, them. I mean, it's a very, it's a scene. Yeah. So I went to their um, Atlanta headquarters, and it, it was like this huge warehouse. I mean, some of it was like underground, and uh, I met the prince who happened to be visiting that day who rarely gives interviews. And I, I think a few years ago, he may have been arrested or maybe his, maybe his boss was arrested. They're, they've been involved in some illegal activities over the years. Um, you got to subsidize things somehow sometimes. <laughs> I mean, you know, like yeah. who has it? But, I mean, Jim Baker, you know, like people, you know. This particular sect believed in a lot of the Old Testament. You know, in Judaism, we have all the laws in the Old Testament. And then we have the oral law, which is the Mishnah and the Talmud, which kind of expands uh, and explains the laws in the Bible, but they don't believe in the oral law, the mission of the Talmud. They only believe in the in the written law. So, for example, in the written law, it says you you should be polygamous. But later on in history, the the Jewish sages said we're outlawing, we're not doing polygamy anymore. But the Black Hebrews still believe in polygamy, so these Black Hebrews are are polygamous. Um, they also believe in a biblical diet, which is 
I don't know where they get all this information from, but like they don't eat sugar or processed foods or, or certain things like that. Um, so they're actually, they're pretty healthy. Well, I guess processed food, that's just a pre-modern diet, right? It's the biblical diet. It's the Quranic diet. It's the Bhagavad Gita diet. It's yeah. anything in pre-modernity is pretty much the non-processed food diet. Yeah. I mean, I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcasts, projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you. David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Kress, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpenig. Simone Garabedian, Samantha Konauer, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. So, you know, it, it's interesting because you talk about, you know, I mean, you've been no stranger to suffering. I mean, every, no, I mean, every human life is a suffering life to some degree, but I mean, you've lost a parent. Also, you talk about, you had really, you struggled with sleep, sleep disorder stuff you have you, you were diagnosed with Crohn's disease mm-hmm. and it's interesting there's this law I didn't realize this is this law that every anybody has to it's it, what's the law? it's not Emily's law it's something law like that anybody with Crohn's is entitled to use any bathroom <laughs> it could be <laughs> isn't that that you say that in the book no, that there's this be. kind of but you make the point in the book it's like this isn't a really useful law because Everybody has to know it. So if you go to some exclusive nightclub and you're like, I have Crohn's disease, I have been told to use your bathroom. That bouncer has to know that this law exists, right? right? right I mean, right, right, if, right. You, if you if want to avail yourself, you should bring a copy of the statute, like in your, like a laminated copy and That's just say, funny. here it is. That's funny. Yeah. I mean, I, I fortunately, I don't have, uh, I have a very mild case of, of Crohn's disease. Um, so it doesn't affect me that much, uh, you know, on a day-to-day basis. Uh, and yeah, I talk about in the book, uh, some sleep issues I have, but you know, in the big scheme of things, you know, I think as you pointed out, we all suffer in, in some way. So you talk about like in in the midst of the, some of the health struggles that you read Michael J. Fox's sort yeah. of memoir, and you said you could summarize it like this: Hi, I'm celebrated actor Michael J. Fox. You may remember me from a movie with a time traveling DeLorean in it, but I'm here to tell you that I have a Parkinson's. It's killing me, and it's a gift from God. It's a blessing. Hope you enjoy my book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was one of my favorite books of all time. I think it's called Lucky Man. And his whole point in that book is he's happy that he got Parkinson's. And given the opportunity, given the choice to not have Parkinson's, 
he said he would still choose to have Parkinson's because uh, it's taught him so much about about life. And I mean, that's if you think about it, that's such an amazing uh, viewpoint on on life and on suffering and on disease. And you know, I recommend that book all the time to people when they're going through a tough time. Um, and you know, he's actually an interfaith marriage too. His wife is Jewish, um, so there's that connection to there as well. Is he religiously? Is is he? I don't. I mean. He's Canadian. <laughs> he's Canadian. Kind of a religion unto itself. I don't know. I mean, he's written a bunch of uh, memoirs, actually, since that first one came out. I think he's written three or four. And I've read them all. And um, it's like a lifetime goal of mine as a journalist to interview him. I would, you know, to meet him and to interview him. He's one of my favorite actors. And, um, but he talks a little bit about religion in there, more spirituality. He talks about, you know, uh, because of his disease and things like that. And he does talk about uh, when his kids, one of his kids, I think, was having a bar mitzvah, and he wrote about that and, and that whole um, experience and what that was like for him. Um, so I think they go to synagogue, you know, in New York where they live, but I'm not sure, you know, to what degree. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to me. You've spent, you know, you, you are a child of the synagogue, or a rabbi's son, and everybody... All your everybody except you and your sister, right, are rabbis in your family. Like all your brothers are rabbis, right? Uh, yeah, all my brothers are rabbis, and one of my sisters married a rabbi. So you're sort of like the, the you you're 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 the sort of religious outlier in the family. Uh, yeah, I'm the black sheep, or I guess they're they're wearing black hats. So I guess I'm the white sheep of the family. You're the white sheep. You're the white sheep. <laughs> What's that show? The White Shadow. You're like the white sheep. Yeah. Hey, yeah, but as someone who's who's spent some intentional time exploring the culture of Christianity in America, I'm wondering how do you see suffering in in, in each tradition? I mean, do you, do you notice? And again, it, part part of being a human being is the fellowship of suffering, but traditions. Do you, and communities deal with this differently. I mean, do you, did you notice differences among things? I noticed like this, uh, something actually very similar stuff. between between them. You know, in Judaism, we say a prayer usually Saturday morning. You know, during the reading of the Torah, uh, we ha- there's a there's a little prayer that the uh, that we say um, for sick people, and you know, the rabbi or or someone else, a leader, a lay leader, gets up and says this prayer and people can insert names of friends or friends or family who are sick. Um, and they do something very, very similar at, at, at a lot of the churches I went to, you know, a prayer for the sick. And, you know, we're praying today for Billy Bob's uncle who, who's having surgery this week, and we're praying for this person who's dealing with cancer. And so, you know, it's more of a communal aspect, more, the, more so than a religious aspect. And it was, you know, it was nice to see certain similarities between, between religions. Is there something in Christianity that, in your exploration of it, you're like, gosh, if I could import this, you know, what I mean? like if we could get this, this would really be nice. This is an idea or a practice, something that I would, I wish we could, we could infuse yeah. this into our DNA. So I'll tell you, there's actually something I, I think, and and there are synagogues that are working on it. So for example, I, I'm going to bring two examples, and don't let me forget that I said two in case I go off on a tangent. <laughs> uh, Noted. The first example is something very practical. Um, when I went to churches, um, you know, for example, one of the churches I went to in the lobby, they had an ATM machine, but it stood for automatic tithing machine. ATM. Oh, the kiosk. Yeah. Yeah. I, Easy Tithe is the big company <laughs> that does tithe. this. I, I never heard. No, that. there is a yeah, yeah. Easy Tithe, yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, these things are fantastic because no one carries cash anymore. Right. So so it makes it very easy 
to, to give money. I, I love that you said the thing that you would bring in is the easy time. <laughs> that is fantastic. <laughs> and, and if you think about it, nowadays, you know, every every bill I pay, whether it's electric bill or cable bill or, you know, um, I pay it all online, digitally. Yeah, and the last thing you're going to think to do is bring cash to church or synagogue, right? right. I mean, like, you, maybe you think about it if you're, gonna, if you're going to New York for the day for meetings because I might need a hot dog or something or a pretzel. But, but you don't. You're not getting up on sh- on Shabbat or the morning of Shabbat or on Sunday morning and thinking, "Oh, let's have some cash." Well, I, like you just, no one's going to do that. I'll take it one step further. So in in synagogue, synagogues don't work the same way as churches do, where they you have a basket that gets passed around every week. Um, the way most synagogues in America work is it's an annual membership, kind of like a gym. And so let's say, and, th- and like a, and like a gym, basically you're saying observance with Jewish observance numbers, like a <laughs> right. gym, you you pay and don't go. <laughs> you go you go after the holiday meals when you feel guilty. You, you, know, like you, you go about as much as you go to the gym. Yeah. So so people don't need to bring money to to a synagogue. But the point is, I would get bills every month, paper bills for my synagogue. You know, okay, you know, you need to pay this month's installment, and I'd have to write a check to them. And they'd send me bills and bills, and you have to write checks and checks, and it was just the most inefficient system. And I was like, "Come on, guys! It's you know, it's the modern era. Set, can't you just set up a PayPal account or something digitally to, to make it easier for people to donate and give money to you?" Uh, and now, you know, I wrote the book a few, you know, a few years ago. I think a lot, some of that has changed, and some of them have gotten on board. And there are these companies now, like like Easy Tithe, but but Jewish companies that can, you know, that synagogues can work with. Um, but the, the, but the overall thing, the overall point I want to make is to be customer oriented. You know, when I walk into a gym, you know, why do I choose gym A versus gym B? You know, because this one offers me more things. It has this, it has that. It, it's more complimentary shaving cream, free towels. Okay. Better hours. What better right. parking, whatever it is, it's a customer oriented business and churches are like that. You know, how can we make it easier for you? How can we, you know, and, and synagogues, again, they're getting better at this, but it's they're more of the mentality of people have to come to us, so we don't need to be as customer-oriented. And so, for example, many synagogues don't have something as simple as listing the page number. You know, what page number, what page are we on? And something as simple as that, just to make it easy for newcomers. You know, a lot of churches I went to had had visitor parking, you know, and it was right next to the handicap parking you know, at the entrance to the church. Great idea. That's an easy idea. Hey, you, you, so you pulled right in with that journalist tag. Here yeah. we go, right next to the handicap so, so that's spot, an man. easy, well, especially when you go to a mega church with 20,000 people. It's, it's great to do that. Do you know there are studies, there are actual studies, I don't know, that people will walk twice as far um, if they can see the front door of the church from the parking lot. I did not know that. So they, so my church, a lot of them design their parking lots so, so that you can see the front door. Cause sometimes if, if they'll just, people just leave. Right, 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 <laughs> it's right. a fascinating thing. Right. Yeah. So, so something is, you know, obviously I'm not talking about bringing Jesus into the synagogue, but something is, as, as easy as, you know, painting visitor parking on a few of the, on a few of the parking spots is something that synagogues can learn from. And there is a group, there, there was a group called Synagogue 3000. And basically, I, have, I know this. I've heard of this. Group. Yeah. So yeah. synagogue three thousands. Basically, their whole mantra is: How do we make synagogues better? How do we get more people into synagogues? And one of the major um, avenues that they look at is churches. And there's I, haven't they brought Rick Warren to talk to? That's what I was going to say. There's this yeah. amazing YouTube video of Rick Warren, who's uh, a mega pastor out in California, and he's in like a small 
classroom with like 20 rabbis. I saw this video. I've seen this. And he's giving and he's advice fantastic. to these rabbis on how to get more people in their synagogues. It's a mind-blowing video. And so, so there's this group, Synagogue 3000, and that's a lot of the things they do. And during the year I was writing my book, they were doing uh, a program uh, in Atlanta, and I got to tag along. On They had monthly meetings, and they would do things like walking into a synagogue that you had never been to before. And they were like, okay, you're a newcomer in this synagogue. It was an interesting exercise. And they're like, okay, what's the first thing you notice? And we were like, okay, where's the bathroom? And there's no signs to the bathroom. You know, when you walk into Target, you can find the bathroom sign. When you walk into Kroger or Walmart, whatever, there's a sign to the bathroom. Anywhere you go, but they, for some reason, the synagogue just didn't think, oh, we need to put up a sign. Again, it's not, it wasn't a customer-oriented experience. And again, they're moving more in this direction, but that is certainly something you know, that I talk about in the book and that I think synagogues can learn from, uh, from churches. The other thing, because I said I had two things, is obviously I think music is very important. You know, especially when you go on the Bible Belt, you hear these amazing gospel choirs. You, you talk about in the book about Days of Elijah. <laughs> yes, that song just stuck with me forever. I, I have that song in my iTunes somewhere. It's, it's in there. Day, when I was these writing the book. are the days of a servant. I, there's this guy, Paul Wimber, or something. Paul, I forget what his name. But he's like, a, he looks like a Christian ver, version of like uh, like a, a, an L.A. Like, um, who's the L.A. Uh, lounge, or the Las Vegas lounge singer I'm thinking of? Um, uh, Don Cashane. Oh, shoot. But he looks like, a, 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 like an L.A., like a Las Vegas lounge singer. Mm-hmm. And he's just like with this, like a look at, at like a, like the band like behind Elvis, in, in in the way it was, and he's just doing this song, and it's like, and they're and then they're waving, you know, actually Israeli flags and stuff. It's great, it's fantastic. Uh-huh. I'll send you the video. It's fantastic. So yeah, I want to see that. So so the, you know they have great music, great gospel choirs, and you really get into it. You know, going to a synagogue can be a very staid, you know, experience. Um, and now again, there's some things that Orthodox synagogues, you know, specifically wouldn't. They Orthodox synagogues may not want to have female singers. They, they may not want to use instruments on the Sabbath. But there's still things you can do to make it more uh, invigorating. There's a guy named uh, Joshua Nelson. He he's uh, his nickname is the Prince of Kosher Gospel, and he's this guy who basically sings the he sings Jewish prayers with a gospel choir behind him. And it's amazing. You know, these are songs that 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 you know, I grew up with and it's like they he's put a whole new life into them. And he goes around and he gives concerts at synagogues. It's funny because I went to one of his concerts at a synagogue and all these people were just sitting down in their chairs because they didn't know what to do. It wasn't part of their vernacular to to get up and start dancing and you know, <laughs> they felt maybe they felt embarrassed. Um but but that's the kind of thing, you know, that I think there's room for. Yeah, it's funny. If you talk to evangelical Protestants, right, I mean, that will be one of the biggest things, alongside maybe the preaching, the music. Yeah. Like, and, and it's and it's not even, it's not contemporary. It's contemporary, but it's not the right kind of contemporary. Right. They play, they don't play Hillsong, or they play right. too much. Of the, or like, they, so, I mean, for evangelical Protestants, mainline Protestants, less so. But, you know, your average Methodist Episcopalian, or less, much less Episcopalians, anyway, definitely, but... But for even John Protestants, man, that bit, it's, it's like a concert. It's like, I, well, it's a perfectly nice people and the sermon wasn't good, but I can't listen to them. You know, that they sound too much like Pearl Jam. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or one church I used to be, I'd be on staff on, my sister-in-law would come and she loved the band. She's like, I love the band. They sound kind of like Pearl Jam. <laughs> 
No, you want it to sound special and unique compared to stuff you listen on the radio. But, you know, like you just pointed out the sermons. You know, I was surprised when I went to these churches and they were giving sermons based on the Old Testament. I didn't know. I was just so naive before I went to church. I just assumed that, you know, us Jews had the Old Testament and the Christians had the New Testament and we each stayed on our own side of the field. But it's like it's like old school where there wasn't interleague play, American League, right. National League. One's got a designated hitter, one doesn't. Right, <laughs> right, right. So, but they, you know, in churches, as you know, they give speeches, they give sermons on Old Testament sometimes, and sometimes on the New Testament. And so, I was at a, I was at a church once, or no, I was watching T.D. Jakes, T.D. Jakes from from Dallas, who's amazing. Uh, he gives amazing sermons. He's on TV, and he was giving an Old Testament sermon, and it was basically very similar on the same topic to a sermon my rabbi at my synagogue had given. And so I brought the tape to my rabbi, and I said, watch this. This guy is giving your sermon a million times better. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure that endeared you. I'm sure that really endeared you to the rabbi. No, but it was, you he know. Loved, he loved, people love that. <laughs> hey, this guy does what you do, kind of, but he does it better. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Be like more like this charismatic black guy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, look, he's got a great choir. Why can't you be more like him? <laughs> you know, one of the things that strikes me among... I guess, and I guess this is more among evangelicals, but you do hear in some mainline circles too. But I mean, I think, for example, like somebody like Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, planted a church 15 years ago or so that grew to like, he's older, he's like in his probably he's 60 now, but this church was incredibly successful in Manhattan. It's like five, 6,000 people. But he spends a lot of time thinking about how faith is relevant to the modern world and thinking about skeptics' questions about faith. You know, that would come, you know, you know, if you're a Jew or a Christian, you have a faith that's, that's formed in the crucible of pre-modern soil, right? And, 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 and you know, now we live in a, in a much different world, right? And so what is the, how do these stories make sense? And what kind of theological commitments and things make sense mm-hmm. to a modern person? I mean, I think that maybe because Christianity is, is, is a missionary religion and, and especially the ones who are most excited about evangelizing, not, which not all Christians are, you know what I mean? But so the ones that enjoy the most probably think the most about what parts of the faith could kind of prick the modern conscience uh-huh. or, and be troubling. I mean, do you, is that something that Jews spend a lot of time doing? Like sort of, I mean, people like, I know like, um, uh, uh, Kushner's book, you know, why do uh, good things happen to right. bad people, which towards the dour Calvinists, or why do bad things happen to good people, which the dour Calvinists would say there are no good people. But right. <laughs> I mean, those kinds of questions, right? I mean, is that something that in your experience, a lot of Jews are, are wrestling with the way certain kinds of Christians would, who are thinking about evangelizing and stuff think about? First of all, oh, I can't speak to, to all Jews, obviously, but you know, there are... No, speak for... No, do it. Speak, <laughs> right now. Speak for all Jews. <laughs> There are obviously spiritual aspects and reflective aspects, and you know, you know, uh, there's actually a, a great counter book to what you just said. It's, it's called um, "If God Is Good, Why Is the World So Bad," um, which I think takes it to takes the argument to the next level. But there are, you know, there are. The problem is, so, it, I, you know, what I can speak to is Orthodox Jews, and in Orthodox Judaism, since we don't evangelize, we're really speaking to the converted. So we're already speaking just to the people that are in the audience. And so, and yes, those people do need, you know, that spiritual flame lit under them. And there should be classes about that. Uh, And they do have classes like that. But it's not like what the sermons are usually about. Usually the sermons are about 
some nitpicking thing in a verse. You know, the verse in this week's Bible, Bible portion says, uses the past tense of this word. Why was God or why was Moses using the past tense of this word? Let's dissect that phrase. And so it's more intellectual gymnastics, you know, and it's a, it's like going to a law class. It's like going, you know, it's like debating. Well, Rabbi A in the Talmud said this, and Rabbi B in the Talmud said this. So how can we figure out which way is right or how they came to those conclusions? And so it's all very intellectually stimulating, but it may not be as inspirationally stimulating. Yeah, that, that's, that's, I mean, that's interesting too, because you're thinking, like, you, you know, Stanley Harawas, a theologian ethicist from Duke at Duke University, says the thing about traditions is a real tradition. You feel like you haven't chosen it. You feel like it's chosen you. Mm-hmm. And even if you're a convert, right? Like your your wife, she probably has the sense that like eventually this kind of chose me, right? Like it, I could do no other kind of thing. Right. I said that that is interesting because you because. I wonder how much of in Judaism it's the culture you have to make sense of, right? Like, why does this culture make sense in the modern world uh, as opposed to for certain Christians? It's it's going to be because it's interesting because religions, you know, there's a social component, there's usually a ritualistic component, and then some kind of doctrinal component, right? Like evangelical Protestants, you know, you, you might have a bunch of people with the same doctrines, but their social and ritual expressions are nothing alike, mm-hmm. right? Whereas in Orthodox Judaism, there's not a lot of wiggle room right in the rituals, but there's tons of wiggle room on what your commitments are. Uh, well, I don't know about that. There, but there, there is, I mean, there is a beauty to that where, whereas, you know, an Orthodox Jew from New York can go to an Orthodox Jew in, in uh, you know, in Australia and, and be familiar with what they're doing there. And it's going to, it's going to feel and look very similar to what they're used to, whether it's at synagogue or at the Sabbath table you know, or anything like that. And believing and belonging isn't so tightly tied, it seems. Whereas for, for Christians, especially for more conservative Protestant types, but for all Christians in general, believing and belonging are very tied together. Mm-hmm. Whereas, and I actually think that's something Christianity could learn from Judaism because when people have sort of wane in, you know, they have existential faith crises, they feel like they don't belong anymore, mm-hmm. right? And it shipwrecks their whole their relationship to a community, as opposed to, in my experience with m- most of my Jewish friends, the, your sense of of belief, you know, you, you you might struggle with believing in God some days, and it doesn't make you belong any less to the community. And 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 in your sort of struggles, you, you have a place you can, you know, you're not you're not uprooted from the community that you need most in times of. Of, of struggle. Right. I mean, the unique aspect of, of let's, something like Orthodox Judaism is that it is a very community-based based experience. Um, you know, Orthodox Jews go to synagogue three times a day, and you have to go to a synagogue, you know, where there's, you know, at least 10 people there. And so, you know, most Orthodox Jews live in a city where there's enough Jews to have services every, you know, three times a day and kosher food. And, and so all these things that you're experiencing, it's not like, you know, when I went to church every Sunday, it was a great way to start the week, but then you, you know, you really didn't see it again. Maybe some people went to Wednesday night Bible study, but you really didn't see it again till, till Sunday. But people who live actively in Orthodox Jewish communities, I mean, you're living in, it's like you're living in this community and you, you know, you all live in the same community because geographically, because you all walk to synagogue. And so you all literally have to live within the same one mile, two mile radius. Um, so it is a very much a community experience. Are you part of an Orthodox community now? Or, 
Well, the, uh, the interesting uh, twist in my story <laughs> is that uh, about six years ago, my wife and I moved from Atlanta, which has a very large Orthodox community, to uh, Morgantown, West Virginia in Appalachia, uh, which has, you know, n- there's probably, you know, just a handful of us here uh, in West Virginia. As far as Orthodox Jews, Jews go, there, there's a nice non-Orthodox community here. Um, you know, so we, we've kind of struck out on our own, so to speak. Uh, and so I don't think we're living in, you know, if you were to ask a typical Orthodox Jewish person where they want to live, they probably wouldn't say Morgantown, West Virginia. For us, it works out great. We, we actually love it here, but it's really different. You actually drive a pickup truck. I've seen pictures of it and you say you drive it ironically. Yes. Yes. I got a, I got a pickup, moved to the woods, got a pickup truck and I do drive it ironically, but I was going to say different strokes are different folks, you know, but I would say most Orthodox Jews would probably prefer to be somewhere, you know, closer to a community. So for services, do you, what, do you go somewhere in Morgantown? I mean, what? So no, a lot of times we just stay at home because we live really too far to walk anywhere. Um, We used to live a little closer to. That's such a great way to get out of, I, I wish that they have a rule for church. Hey, like. I would have gone, but I couldn't walk. There's no place in walking distance. I mean, I like that. Right. It's pajama Sabbath where we just hang out in our pajamas. But it's a real relaxing 24 hours. You're Uh, actually really doing Shabbat. I mean, you're actually really relaxed. Yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) There is, um, because it's a college town where we live, there is, um, there's a Hillel on the campus and there's also a Chabad on the campus, which does a lot of outreach to the students. And they have, they have events and services and things on Friday nights. And we used to live in walking distance, and so oftentimes we'd go there. Uh, but we've since moved a little further out, so we're not in walking distance to those places. In the, in the conclusion of your book, you say that you've learned the, the many lessons you've learned over that year where you were visiting churches and hanging out with Christians have started to help you become a more serious Jew, someone who looks to religion not as a burden, but as a source of hope. And when my faith occasionally wanes, as it does for all of us, I can draw on these experiences to bolster me. I mean, I wonder how, how did, could you say something more about like the burden to hope change in your life? Like, like, like how, how what, the, the nature of that experience and then, and what, what does it look like when faith wanes for you? Well, that's a great question. Um, you know, growing up, you know, I get, you know, I didn't get to choose Judaism, so I felt it was force fed down my throat and especially the uh, particular quote unquote brand of Judaism that I was brought up in. And Orthodox Judaism has a lot of laws and strictures. And if you're a, a kid, the last thing you want is laws and strictures. And we weren't allowed to eat, you know, I wanted to eat nerds candy and nerds candy wasn't kosher, you know, and you know, why, what's, what, why is nerds, they couldn't, they, could they have made it kosher? Maybe they could have, and maybe it's kosher now, but I remember back then it wasn't kosher. I mean, it could have been as simple as paying for the rabbi to come and, and, and get the kosher symbol. It could have been that they were made on the same, factory floor is something that wasn't kosher. It could have been they had gelatin in it. I, I don't know why they weren't kosher, but they were I love nerds. But they were kosher. I love nerds. <laughs> yeah. That and gobstoppers. I used to love that. But I remember I seeing like non-religious friends of mine eating nerds, and I was just like, oh, I wish I could eat nerds. You know, it was like a big deal for me growing up. And so like, so when you're brought up like that and you think of a million different examples like that, you know, why can't I go to the movies on Saturday? Why do I have to stay at home and go to synagogue on Saturday? Um... Or I can't watch TV on Saturday, you know, because because Orthodox Jews don't don't watch TV on Saturday. So like I was brought up, and it was brought up in this way. It was just like you can't do this, you can't do that. So obviously, someone like that could have, you know, it's not surprising that someone like that could have negative experiences and negative connotations when they think about religion. Um, but what I learned at all these churches is that 
<clears throat> there's so much more to religion and especially to spirituality um, that has nothing to do with those, you know, those those deeds, those, you know, those commandments. You know, it has much more to do with the meaning of life, with the meaning of, you know, community, um, with the shared humanity we all experience, whether whatever religion we are. And so it kind of opened my eyes to, to instead of looking at things in such a narrow focus, like, ah, oh, Judaism won't let me do X, Judaism won't let me do Y, um, to look at it more as a, a spiritual experience. And, it, it is a, and for then it becomes much more of a rich, richer, meaningful, more meaningful experience. Yeah, the rituals become sort of means to, right. to a transcendent end as opposed to just kind of ends in themselves. <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah. And when your faith wanes, I mean, what does that look like? I mean, is it, is it existential stuff? Is it just like, uh, you know, sort of the typical American, ah, I'm leading a life of quiet desperation? I mean, what? Well, it's always easier, you know, I say, when I, it's always easier on a Sunday morning for people to sleep late, to, you know, go play tennis with a friend, go have brunch with a friend. But a lot of people in America get up on Sunday morning and go to church. And, you know, so there's always an e- quote-unquote easier way, something, you know, that's... Um, but there's no reward in taking the easy way out, you know? When, when we when we do things that are sometimes hard for us, I think we, we reap more benefits from it in the long run. So switching gears a little bit, like from your book, yeah. uh, well, two questions. I just, I, you, you were in Israel recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder what do you think about the sort of the whole announcement of the moving of the embassy and, and this kind of thing. I mean, it's a, I mean, let's just stick with something that's not controversial. Um, I mean, uh, how is that? And just in general, you know, Donald Trump. It seems like you know looms large on so many areas of our culture in a way that presidents rarely have, you know, if ever have. I mean. I think that's one particular thing that affects Jews in Israel. I mean, it brought more broadly, like as an Orthodox Jew, is is your experience of the current sort of political climate? I mean, is it arresting? Is it you know? Are there? I'm interesting, interested in sort of as someone who's spent who's an Orthodox Jew, but also spent time in ecumenical circles. I mean, how has the Trump era been for you? Um. You know, I try to <laughs> I'll start off by saying I try to stay out of politics. Um, <laughs> but I mean, it has been interesting to me. I was surprised when I went to Israel. You know, again, I was hanging out with more of the Orthodox Jewish community in Israel than the secular Jews there. So I couldn't tell you what necessarily what the secular Jews think. But the, I was surprised at how many Orthodox Jews there were so supportive of Trump. Yeah, didn't a soccer team like name themselves? Yeah, I don't Trump, know if that was yeah. a PR stunt or not. But, um, you know. And, you know, for those of us who are living here in America, um, you know, I think we look at it less black and white as maybe they do because they're they're probably more one issue voters. And so they just want to know, is the American president pro-Israel or I guess all American presidents are pro-Israel. They want to know on a scale of one to ten, uh, you know, how pro-Israel is this president. Um, and that's really you know, they may be one issue voters, but here in America, we're, you know, I would consider myself an American Jew more than a Jewish American per se. So I, I am concerned about a plethora of issues. You know, Israel might be one of those issues, but I'm also concerned about, you know, um, healthcare, immigration, and all the same issues that other people are, are interested in. Um, the wall. <laughs> the wall. <laughs> yeah. Um, Stormy Daniels. Yeah. So, exactly. Michael Avenatti. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, everyone's beliefs, to me, it's important to realize that issues 
are gr- everything is is gray. You know, to look at anything black and white uh, is not to give something justice. So, you know, that's something I learned by going to these churches. If you just say, okay, well, here are these evangelical Christians, and therefore they all think like this, that's certainly not true. I mean, you have, as you know from you know from your travels, you have some who are more liberal than others. You have some who are more conservative than others. And I you know I think each each individual uh, looks at it differently. Yeah, it's interesting. Like I had a guy on the podcast, a British kind of. He's an Anglican. He's an evangelical kind of Anglican, and he says, you know, if somebody said they were an evangelical Christian in England, it would give you no insight into how they were going to vote. <laughs> like his church is equally mixed between Labour, Tory, Tory, you know, conservative, and and Liberal Democrat. Like the like, it's just it, it doesn't. It's not like here. Where right. it's a reliable, right? I mean, even in the Jewish community in America, if you look at the Jewish community in America, I mean, you have Trump supporters and you have people who are not Trump supporters. I don't think there's any, you know, there's so many different shades and denominations and sects and 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 reasons why people vote a certain way. So you know, you can't make any blanket statements. Now, as a journalist, you've got a new project uh, launching that just debuted. Uh, our friend from Israel, right, a podcast where you are profiling. Interesting Israeli. Yeah, so we launched... Uh, I work for a website called fromthegrapevine.com, which is basically... Which sounds like a winery. From the, It does sound like a winery. Uh, good vineyard, fromthegrapevine.com. And what we try to do there is we try to show people... You know, people get enough news from Israel about politics and religion, and so we try to show people a different side, you know, uh, of Israel. And so we have stories about, you know, science breakthroughs that are coming out of Israel or tech breakthroughs or... You know, actors. Yeah, Israel artists. is like the center, right, of the people that are working on um, driverless cars, right? A lot of the technology is Israeli. Oh, yeah. I, I, I saw a lot of that when I was there a few months ago, that they were doing a lot on autonomous cars. You know, the, I was reading some crazy stuff. You know, they call it Silicon Valley, you know, um, it's like a second, it's like a mini Silicon Valley over there. I think I read recently they have more startups listed on NASDAQ than. Uh, all of Europe com- combined, you know, there's just... But hey, you know what's great about this country? We're bringing coal back. Right. Oh, yeah, we're, we're making America great again. We're bringing clean coal. Right. I mean, you can't have clean coal. You touch coal, your hand is dirty. Everybody knows. There's no such thing as clean coal, right? So, yeah, so there's actually a great book called Startup Nation, which is all about how how the uh, how Israel has become such a epicenter of uh, tech startups and uh, but it's really you know we we profile artists and um, uh, actors, athletes, academics, archaeologists. Your first guest is fascinating, right? This guy's at Harvard, and he's like looking for habitable planets. So the crazy thing about this guy is, first of all, this guy he's an alien hunter. His name is Dr. Avi Loeb. And the crazy thing is, so when I tell you he's an alien hunter, your first thought is he's a cuckoo. You know, he's crazy, but he's actually a very uh, serious guy, but, and he's uh, very well respected in the field. He's the chair of Harvard's astronomy department. And you really can't get, you know, in that world, you really can't get any higher up than, than the chair of Harvard's astronomy department. He's written more than 500 scientific papers, and I think Time Magazine listed him as one of the most important scientists of the of the 21st century. And um, so, and all these films and serial and dramas where they're thinking about, hey, we got to get off the Earth, we got to find. He's actually doing it. He's like, look, this is going to come up. It might not be, it might be in a hundred years, it might be in a thousand years, it might be, but this is going to come a point if the human race is existing, we're going to have to think about getting off the planet. And I'm on the front end of that work. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, right. That's well, great. You can't get any better it's, than that. 
So he was our first guest. The, the podcast is called Our Friend from Israel. And uh, I hope everybody subscribes. And uh, our first guest was, was, was him. And he is... Um, so basically his thesis, as you pointed out, is eventually Earth is going to become <clears throat> uninhabitable, whether it's tomorrow an asteroid strikes us tomorrow or whether it's a thousand years from now because of climate change or a hundred years from now. There are parts of Jersey that seem uninhabitable right now, yeah. to be quite honest. Yeah. I mean, I can see that. So, uh, so he, 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 so his, uh, goal is how do we find a place for all of humanity to move to? And this is not an idea he has alone. There's a, uh, a, there's a hundred million dollar project currently going on called the breakthrough star shot initiative. And it's being funded by the Silicon Valley entrepreneur. And he's got uh, Mark Zuckerberg is on board to help. And Stephen Hawking, before he passed away, was on the board to help as well. And this guy, Dr. Avi Loeb, was, is, is helping. And so they're trying... You think Zuckerberg's any use on that board? Uh, well, I mean, I mean, do you think he's, the board he just wears there. the hoodie? He comes in like, hey, look. Like, he can't keep your data safe. How's he going to get us into Like, I don't know about Zuckerberg. I guess that's the Bill Gates, maybe I'd say. Right, right, right. So, so, so they're looking for ways. First, what they're looking for is they want to find alien life. That's the first thing they're looking for. And so they're listening. They have the world's largest telescopes. I think there's one in Hawaii, one in Australia, and one actually here in West Virginia, believe it or not. Uh, they're constantly listening for aliens and, and just to hear if anyone's out there. And once we do find the, that um, intelligent life out there, they're going to want to communicate with them and eventually say, hey, can we move in? Uh, and so that's what this guy talks about on the first Dude, episode. we better hope, isn't Stephen Hawking said that we better hope that, they're not, that we're the technological superior? Because if it's not, this is going to be, we'll be the indigenous Americans. They'll be the conquistadors. So, it, it'll be over for us. Yeah. So I asked him, I said, well, you know, this is such like a pie in the sky, you know, no pun intended, project. And he's like, he's like, but that's, he's like, you know, that's what people looked at when, when Einstein was first talking about the theory of, of relativity. People thought he was crazy and like, why, you know, why are you even talking about such things? It's not a practical thing. But it takes people at, you know, at a certain points in history to start thinking outside the box and to start thinking of these grand solutions to, to humanity's problems because that's the only way we're ever going to we're ever going to figure out those solutions is if you start thinking big and thinking yeah, yeah, no the discovery box. no i th absolutely i mean i think like you know um the rabbi he's deceased uh friedman who wrote the book failure of nerve which is an amazing book on family systems and leadership but he has this whole chapter on the age of discovery and how just like discovering the new world like got europe unstuck Mm -hmm. Like in all sorts of fields, just because their mind expanded and the emotional, he talks about emotional myths that we live by. And so like he talks about this one trainer, who, runner who broke the four minute mile and they said, how do you do it? And they said, easy. He didn't have a European or American coach. Like, so they were putting the myths in their head. Right, so I right, think, right, right. no, I think you're right. The, 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 the virtue of discovery breaks emotional myths and barriers. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So he he's an interesting guy. Next week, so we're, we're, the whole point of the podcast is just to introduce people to interesting Israelis from all walks of life. And so you know, one week like this first episode, we had this academic on, but next week we have this uh, musician. Really fascinating story is this classical piano player who got cancer, and when he was in the hospital, he really said a prayer to God, and he said. God, if you can get me out of this, I want to give 100 concerts for charity, um, which he did. Uh, he got cured of cancer, and he gave 100 concerts for charity. But then he had this crazy 
uh, follow-up medical problem where he lost the use of his right hand, and he's a dominant right-handed piano player. And so now he can only use his left hand. And, you know, talk about a guy who's been through, you know, rough times. He's taught himself to retaught himself to play classical music one-handed. And if you close your eyes, you wouldn't know he's only playing one-handed. It's, it's yeah, like, I've heard parts of this interview, and I've heard his own playing. Yeah. It's remarkable. I mean, I would just go fetal if, if that happened to me. <laughs> if I'm a piano player and I lose my hand, I would just quit life. I mean, I would not. I, it's amazing to me that somebody just is like, oh, all right, well, I'll just have to start it with my left hand. No, I would just, I'm done with life. Like, this is it. You know, like, come exactly, on, it's over. Exactly. We, most of us would just give up at that point. But he's, it's a truly inspirational story, and I'm looking for. I give up. If I want to go do something, it's overcast sometimes, I give up. I mean, like, <laughs> like I mean, you know, this guy is, like, so resilient and seems like a beautiful soul. Yeah. So, so you know, you'll, they'll hear people who tune in will hear people like that. Um, I actually interviewed uh, an Israeli archaeologist uh, for another upcoming episode, and which was fascinating because he looks at his job more as a physical anthropologist. And so he looks at it as like through the lens of what does this mean for human evolution and what can we learn from the past to make us better people nowadays. So he was telling me, I said, what's your favorite thing that you've ever discovered that you have? And he goes, I have the bones, I have the skeleton of a dwarf from like, you know, thousands of years ago. And I said, well, what, what makes that so special? And he said, it's amazing because the dwarf was an adult dwarf. And he said, it's amazing that this, uh, that this dwarf thousands of years ago lived to be an adult. And the only way this person could have lived to be an adult was if he had the help of a community supporting him and helping him survive. And he was just like, to him, that was such a special, special meaning to what this skeleton was. It wasn't just, oh, I found these thousand-year-old bones, but it told him something important about the people who were living then. Yeah, I, that's amazing. And it's a great show and I, I i do encourage our listeners i mean i listen to a lot of podcasts i love podcasts i am a podcaster it's great it's really well done it's really well produced and and you you're getting great guests so i'd encourage all of our listeners uh to subscribe thank you and uh i have to thank you for for helping uh advise us on on all the technical sides of, of launching a podcast it can be murky waters when you're trying to get started so it was good to have some- it, it is it's it's overwhelming and i i enjoy helping people up because it is it's an overwhelming thing to to take the first steps. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just Google how to start a podcast and you'll want to close all your browser tabs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's nice. Well, Benny, good luck on the podcast. Thanks. Your book is fascinating Thank and you. people can find, you know, I'll, I'll link to all your social media handles and so forth in the show notes and I hope people subscribe to our friend from Israel. Thank you so much. This has been really fun, Scott. Uh, it's been great. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Benjamin for coming on the podcast. Do check out his new podcast, Our Friend from Israel. And thanks to you again for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.